the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And uh, joining me on the phone, of course, is my co-host for this episode, Alan Niven. Good day, Sir Alan. Good day, Mitch. How are you doing? Good. Well, you know what? I am I am coming off a week of people talking about this Paul Stanley interview that I have done, and I'm I am on this, I guess for the lack of a better word, a high that I don't think I will come down from anytime soon. It leaves it leaves somebody that you used to deal with quite a bit as my bucket list interview. Uh, it leaves me with Axel Rose on my list of people I still need to talk to before I retire. But since I haven't talked to Axel, we are not retiring anytime soon. Well, strange things have happened, haven't they? Yes. I mean, I think if you talk to people intimately involved, they were very surprised at the longevity of the tour that he just completed um, from the little birds that sit on the wire and chipper and chatter to me, um, everybody was surprised. And I count my, myself amongst the surprised. And I also count myself amongst those who take my cap off and say, well done, guys, I'm surprised. And, yep. and slightly slightly proud in a, in a little way that they went out there and did it and, and fulfilled all their obligations and played for a lot of people. I mean, that's what you're there for. Yeah, they, they, they did exceptionally well. And I think, like most people, when, when the tour was first announced and they were going to go play Coachella and those Las Vegas dates, we all said they ain't making it out of Coachella. It's going to, it's going to implode before we get there. And then of course, Axel broke his leg and, and then we went, Oh yeah, it's definitely not going to get past. And, and here we are two years later and they're still touring. They've got a whole slew of dates coming up in November, which is literally in two weeks from now. So, you know, so good on yep. them. But uh, on this episode, cause we haven't told the folks who we have, uh, we have got the one, the only uh, slash. Huh? How's that? Follow up a Paul Stanley interview with Slash. That's that's pretty good right there. Uh, and I'm sure you might have a story or two to tell about Slash, uh, right? I mean, you you've you've heard of him? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, he's he's got a a very special place in my life. Um, I've known him since he was what nineteen twenty, um, and I wouldn't hesitate to tell you that if he had never picked up a guitar and never played a guitar, I would still be happy to call him a friend because I've always found him to be incredibly good company, very smart, um, literate, curious. He's just somebody who's really cool to hang out with. And I would love to have called him a friend, even if he wasn't a guitar player. The fact that he's become as iconic as he has, um, that fills me with a little bit of almost brotherly or paternal pride. And, you know, I'm so delighted that he's playing the best he's playing. Um, now he's just grown and grown and grown and is so expressive, so articulate, so slash. So slash, so perfect. And, and of course I did in the interview mentioned to him, I said, you know what? I said, me and Alan have been talking about how you are playing the best you've ever played. 
tell me your thoughts about that. And uh, and so we did we did talk about that. We did talk about what he thought of Axl Rose in ACDC. And of course, let's not forget, we spoke about the new album called Living the Dream with uh, Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators. And uh, it was just a very, very pleasant chat because it was very unexpected uh you know i i was at simple minds on on this friday night and i got a call saying hey do you got 30 minutes right now and i was like oh no i'm at i'm at simple minds but i'd, I'd love to and he said well how about if i call sunday and it's like yeah 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 call sunday that's that's yeah, no worries so no it was just nice to hear that and uh, just before we get to the slash interview we do have Tony Dolan of Venom Inc., and I put them on this episode because Tony reveals something about Guns N' Roses, and I'll, I'll get to that after. And we have former white zombie bassist Sean, and uh, you know the name, I think it's Yasult. Yasult, Yasult. Anyway, she currently in New Orleans has a new photography uh, show going on called they all axed for you, and it's part of the 300th uh, anniversary celebrations of the city of New Orleans, and, and we talk about her art style. In fact, we talk a lot about her different art technique and different art style. A little bit of white zombie in there, but it really was this sort of creative process interview, which I thought, which I personally thought was fascinating. Hopefully, listeners will, will agree, but uh, Le Slash, Le Sir Slash... Um, have you been following the the solo career at all? Do, do you do you listen to those albums? Do you get the albums? Do you, do you seek them out? Uh, what do you think of sort of right now balancing the Guns N' Roses stuff with the Slash solo stuff? How do you sort of see that? Well, again, it's peculiar for me because it's so personal and so close, and. I don't necessarily seek out what has been done recently that much. Um, my oldest son always informs me and always tells me which songs are cool and what he thinks um, because he is, he's absolutely uh, laser-focused in, in following what Slash does. Um, but I'm... Uh, I, I think I almost have a slightly unique position because I'm the old grump from back in the day. And occasionally I, I'm justifiably accused of being a bit blunt. And it's, I, I feel for Miles, you, how do you follow a truly great singer? I mean, Rogers, Plant, Russell, Rose, it's nigh on impossible to follow a great singer and I think he does um, a very difficult job with great grace performing GNR songs as part of the set. I'm hoping that now they've got one more album that those GNR songs become less and less a part of the set and people are less demanding to hear them and that they have patience to hear what they've been doing creatively. Um, but it, as an old grump I tend to sit there and go well um, Here's the bar. It's called Appetite for Destruction. You got any songs that are as good? And maybe I'm at the point of the sword on this, but I tend to look at what Slash is doing, and I've said this to him directly myself. I said, 
I'd like to see you work with other writers who can produce material that come up to the standard of your ability to play at this point. And I don't really hear those songs at this point, but I hear him playing like a mother. And I just wish he were connected to somebody as a composer in which his playing could shine even even more because it's in better content, in company of better content. Um, but, you know, that's just... Right, but but my, it is hard... My perception, it's my perception of Moonlight. But, but it is hard to top an album like Appetite for Destruction. It doesn't matter. You could write the next greatest song, but, but there was that certain... You know what was there, what what out what was out there in the ether to to try to recreate it and the vibe and the I mean it's it's almost undoable. Um, and, and then real quick, I know the the I know. the combination of Axel and Slash. You, you know you look at Jagger Richards, you look at uh, Perry and Tyler, and you know I could go on and on and on. But you take those Chinese democracy songs and you go, okay, well, you know, Axel has a great solo album here. It sounds nice and whatever. But then you hear them live and you hear Slash is playing on it. And I, yes, of course, Duff is playing on it live too. But there really is a chemistry. And, and I know it's a cliche word to use, but Slash completes Axel and Axel completes Slash. I mean, if you take Living the Dream, this the Slash album, and you put Axel on it, it suddenly is whoops another level, and I, and that's not to be disrespectful to Miles or to Slash, but just talk to me a little bit from your perception. What is it about those two that it just there's just an it factor? It, it's unexplainable. Well, maybe it's not unexplainable, and I think you put your finger right on it. I mean, you talked about Keith and Mick and the boys from Aerosmith. Um, and I'll take it to personal experience. Um, I'd even mention Russell and Kendall. And in the creation of the great white catalog, I was extremely conscious that at the heart of the matter was a conversation between the guitar and the vocal. And we spent a lot of time in pre-production and a lot of time when recording, um, hours and hours on working with Kendall on solos to make sure that there was that sense of almost a duet between them, that there's a conversation going back and forth, that the guitar has to be as memorable as the vocal lines and the vocal lines have to have some of the bite and swerve of the guitar. And when you're fortunate enough to have two incredibly well-matched, uh, a guitar player and a vocalist, there you've got the heart of a, of a really, really good band and a really good form of, it, of conversation and expression. And I think you put your finger on it that as regards recording and writing, I think it's essential for Slash to have Axel and vice versa. But I'd go one step further. Um, there was the X factor, the critical X factor from my point of view of GNR. And that was Izzy Stradlin's writing and his vernacular. And between the three of them, you had an amazing chemistry. And 
it would be interesting to see if that could be reignited in the Petri dish and the studio. I don't know if it can. I mean, you know, it's a long time ago, but that would be what I'd be looking for, is to see if the three of them could actually write two or three songs together. I think uh-huh. you might get a little bit of magic again. Oh, that would be great. And 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 if we can't, I would be satisfied with a live recording of the last tour. And I'm sure they probably have, you know, board tapes of every single show because that's what bands do these days. You know, you pop everything into a hard drive. I think it'd be nice to hear a nice double album of the best versions of this whole tour. And anyway, we'll see. But let's let's get over to Slash right now. Um, this was done on a quiet, sleepy Sunday afternoon, and uh, here is the one, the only, Slash. We are speaking with guitarist Slash. The new album is Living the Dream, of course, by Slash, featuring Miles Kennedy and The Conspirators, which, of course, features two wonderful Canadians, Todd Kearns and Brent Fitz. Uh, Slash, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. Hey, man. I didn't talk to you, too. You left Frank out. He's not Canadian. But... Oh, that's right. I left Frank out. That that wasn't very kind of me. But yes, of course, Frank, uh, uh, my my Canadian-ism, whatever, <laughs> took the best of me. But uh, yeah. but let's talk about this album because, well, let me, let me contextualize it this way. You've been on this incredibly successful tour for two years. It made half a billion dollars. Why not sort of just sit at home and, and, and watch the grass grow and take a little vacation time? Talk to me about this need to get into the studio and get this album out there. Well, I mean, you know, I've been working with Miles and company for since 2010, really. And so when um, we were at the end of the World on Fire tour in 2015, we started... Uh, uh, well, first off, we'd established ourselves as, you know, having uh, a great, you know, great little fucking rock and roll unit. Um, a lot of chemistry and good relations and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, when we did the World on Fire record, that was like a step up for us and so on. And so we'd been writing some material on the road. And at the end of that tour, um, we started just getting into some pre-production and then the Guns N' Roses thing happened and that took up the better part of a year and a half before there was a break long enough for me to go in and sort of finish what we started as far as uh, the conspirators were concerned, as far as these songs that we've written. And uh, so I took that break and, and I'd always been in the back of my mind that I was going to do this record with, with, you know, Miles and Frank and Todd and, and Brent. So, you know, I took advantage of the opportunity and went in and, and did this record fairly quickly. And then, uh, you know, I think we started in, in late January and, and the record was mastered in May and right in time for Guns N' Roses rehearsals before we went out on our last European trek. But anyway, so, but it was always my ambition to keep this band going, um, you know, regardless of, of Guns N' Roses, you know, just sort of something that I wanted to do. And so um, here, you know, here we are. Yeah, here we are indeed. So, so talk to me about the songs uh, coming together. Are these songs that mostly Miles brings to the band and, and then you guys put in your parts? Or are these songs you have written? What is sort of the songwriting writing process for the band? Well, when Miles and I first uh, worked together back in, um, 
where we put out, when I did that first solo record with all the singers, um, uh, you know, the way it worked was I wrote a, a piece of music and I gave it to him and he wrote the, the, the melodies and the lyrics. And that's the way we've been doing it ever since. And so I write music on the road and, you know, we jam here and there at sound checks or whatnot and sort of get a feel for a riff or a chord progression or whatever it is. And Miles will come up with some melodies and so on. And we just sort of record those and stockpile them until uh, the end of the tour. And then we go into a rehearsal room and start jamming these things out and getting arrangements together. So basically I just come up with music and then Miles comes up with some melodies and, and ultimately lyrics. And, and that's basically how the songs come together. Now you come up with pieces of music after the, the the GNR tour, do you start looking at some of those pieces of music and say, hmm, I'm going to have to have two piles, one for Slash and the Conspirators and one maybe for GNR? Or are these really sort of, nope, these are just for the Slash thing and that's it? Right. That's a, that's a real commonly asked question. Um, you know, as we, like when I'm out with, with Guns N' Roses, um, I'm primarily focused on Guns N' Roses. So I'm not really thinking about the conspirators at that point. And so if I write anything during that period, I'm thinking more in terms of Guns N' Roses. If I'm out with conspirators and I'm writing on the road and, and doing the conspirators tour, then I, I write with that in mind. And so the twain don't really meet too much um, on the same ground. Now, if there was like a Guns N' Roses idea that was still being sort of polished off or something, and I was on the road with the conspirators, that would still be a Guns N' Roses idea. Do you know what I'm saying? But other than that, fresh ideas that come up that are inspired by what you're doing at present, then that's 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 tailor-made for what it is that you're doing at present. That seems to be the formula. It's a good formula. Um, talk to me about your. <laughs> it's a good. It seems to be working. Talk to me about the about your guitar playing. You know, Alan and Alan Niven and I discuss often how your guitar playing is while you're probably playing the best you've ever played first of all do you share that that you know uh feeling and talk to me about how your guitar playing has improved over the last 20 years uh i mean you know it's the guitar playing is something that you just work at you know indefinitely (laughs) you know it's 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 an adventure that that never ends and and you can't you know i mean there's always something obviously to learn and and you just continue doing that so i would hope i would i would be getting better as opposed to going the other direction um and i i would hate to be sort of just stalled in one place um but then at the same time it's hard for me to sort of you know verbalize to you at what point i'm at um, you know, say compared to two years ago or four years ago, or whatever. But you know, the fact that I'm playing better now than I was a couple of years ago, I would hope that would be the case. You know, I'm trying. Yeah, keep keep practicing. We enjoyed the uh, the first Slash album, not not the Snake Spits uh, Snake Spit stuff, but the first album that came out in 2010. You of course had Chris Cornell and Miles and Fergie and Ozzy and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you would like to do again in the future and really have something apart from the conspirators and just get back to a s- really slash solo solo album? Um, I mean, you know, when I did that first solo record, it was during a time when I was basically totally on my own. I had I had no prospects. The revolver was done. You know, there was there was no. Um, 
there was no misconceptions about Guns N' Roses. Well, I guess at the time, misconceptions about Guns N' Roses getting together or anything like that. So I was just doing stuff for myself. And so I had that idea to do a solo record, but have all these different singers sing on it. And that's what I ended up doing. And that is where, you know, basically where the conspirators really, the, 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 uh, the, you know, the, the beginnings of it, the origins of the conspirators. Um, so at this point I'm, I'm, you know, sort of riding the wave of what the conspirators are doing and also with Guns N' Roses and what that was happening with that. So I'm not really thinking about, um, you know, doing any kind of solo stuff for myself per se at this point in time. Okay, great. So um, let me just ask you about about the GNR thing for a second. Uh, you know, much was said over the years about not being in the band and so on and so forth. What is it like now looking back after two years, having been back in the band? Is, is it a, a feeling of relief? Is it like, yeah, I knew this was going to happen? Just sort of, how does it feel two years on getting back with, with Duff and Axel and playing to stadiums and and, and the money, the half, yeah. you know, it, it, just talk to me a little bit about that. Um, well, I mean, it was definitely not something that, you know, had, had I been a betting man <laughs> that, you know, I, it was definitely not something that I foresaw, you know, coming. Um, I was probably, probably the most sort of, you know, negative about anything ever happening with Guns N' Roses just because of a lot of pent up, negative feelings and animosity that it developed and so on and so forth. But then, you know, that said, Axel and I had not talked for, it was 20 years by the time it was that he and I had a conversation. And, uh, you know, when, when we got past all that and it came together and we got into the rehearsal room for, you know, a minute, it was just super, super powerful. And I'd sort of forgotten the, 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 I don't know, that feeling, that the, the chemistry that the, the band innately has. Um, and so once that started, you know, that was just an overwhelming feeling. And yeah, it was a relief to have it all come back together. It was cathartic in a lot of ways, and it was musically really exciting. And then, you know, the tour, the ensuing tour was just one of the best professional experiences of my I, I, you know lifetime. So, you know, all things considered, two years later, looking back on it, I'm really, really happy that it all came together. And um, I'm I'm really relieved that, you know, it didn't go by way of, of just having that black cloud forever, <laughs> you know, and, and nothing ever coming out of it again. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I say this not not necessarily facetiously, but uh, as a betting man, when we th heard about the original idea that the band was going to tour, most of us thought, well, we'll give it six weeks and it'll implode. And then here we are. Two oh, I'm weeks, sure. Right. And here we are I'm two sure. years yeah, later yeah. and it's still going on. Um, talk to me quickly about working with Miles, because when you listen to your guitar work and Axel's and his voice, there's just this magical thing that happens. Um, and we'll, I'll explore that in a minute. But talk to me about Miles as a singer and working with him. And what does he bring to the band? And, and out of all those singers that you had a chance to work with in the past, um, you know, why sort of, and I don't want to say choose Miles, but why did you sort of break it down to, to you and Miles doing the conspirators together? Well, I think something happened when we, you know, when I first met Miles, um, when I had him sing on Starlight, um, I'd never met him and I'd never listened to Alter Bridge. And I didn't know much about him. Um, 
but his name had come up many times. I mean, his name came up when we were auditioning singers for uh, Velvet Revolver before Scott Weiland came into the picture. So I've been hearing his name for years. But uh, when I was doing the solo record, I sort of earmarked all the different singers that seemed appropriate for each piece of music that I had, except for two. And so when I finished everything else and I still had those two songs staring me in the face, it's like, I can't think of who would be the right you know, person or right people to sing these two songs. And so Miles' name came up because of the Zeppelin thing that he got called in to do. And I thought, this guy has to be really good. Let's just give it, you know, I've got nothing to lose. Let's just even take a shot in the dark here. So I called him up and I told him I was making this record about different vocalists and all the songs and would he be interested in, in doing one? And so he said, yeah. And I, I sent him the music and a few days later came back and I listened to it. I was just blown away. And uh, I played it for Eric Valentine, who was the uh, the producer of that record. And I said, is it just me or is this fucking awesome? You know, and he goes, oh, this is great. So Miles flew into L.A. and uh, we met for the first time. And he was just a really, really cool, very unassuming, laid back, soft spoken, cool kind of a guy. Right. And, uh, um, you know, put down this amazing vocal for Starlight. And then I thought, well, maybe you could sing this other piece of music. And that became a song called Back From Cali. And at that point, you know, I realized he had such a great range and he was so easygoing and this and that. I asked him if he wanted to do the tour that I was going to put together, which I hadn't even thought about yet. But I knew that obviously I couldn't take all these different singers out on the road, but he seemed like the kind of person where I could tell that he had the range to be able to cover you know, the stuff on that record and Velvet Revolver and Guns N' Roses and Snake Pit. And I could put together this this whole sort of catalog package, you know, show. And uh, he signed on to do it. And we just, we rehearsed for, well, I met Brent Fitz, who introduced me to Todd Kearns. And, and, uh, and so we rehearsed for like a week, maybe not even two, not even, yeah, a little over a week. And we played our first gig at the Roxy. And it just had that sort of like, um, you know, sort of very much a band kind of enthusiasm to just go and play. And that's all anybody cared about. And so we just went out and started doing it. And we just built up this rapport and we, you know, finally went in and did the uh, Apocalyptic Love record. And so we sort of established a, a songwriting thing and uh, toured on that. And so it's just something that Miles just, he and I just write well together and we get along really well. And it's just, it has a certain chemistry, which you don't find often, if at all, you know, and that's just where, you know, and, and, and the rest of the guys are really awesome too. So it just works really well as a kind of unit. And, and for me, I just sort of, you know, I steer it and I, I sort of set up the business for it and all that kind of stuff. And I, I make up, you know, music for it. And we just sort of, it, it works really, really simply, you know, it really does. Now, is this, the, do you still want to go forward with the band after this album cycle and, and the tour and then go back to Guns N' Roses and focus on it? Or do you want to keep going with this and have another album in two years and another tour down the road? What's sort of the well, future? I, no, I definitely want to keep it going. I mean, I'm going to do this album cycle. I want to see what Guns N' Roses is going to do. And so that's sort of something I'm paying attention to. And then, um, and then, you know, it's sort of playing it by ear schedule wise and you sort of just work it all out. You know, I mean, there's always points when guns isn't working that the conspirators can be working and vice versa. So we'll, we'll figure it out. We've done so thus far. So, 
and Alter Bridge. Let's not forget Alter Bridge. You've got three, oh, well, band, yeah. I mean, there's three bands to follow. Yeah, ev- yeah, well, everybody, that's that's sort of the beauty of it. I mean, Miles has got his band. Um, everybody's got their own projects and this and that and the other. And this is just sort of like the dirty mistress that we love to, <laughs> we love to keep visiting. Yeah, you keep coming back to it. So let, let me ask you about yeah. this. When, when you think of Steven Tyler, you think of Joe Perry on, on guitar. And when you think, of course, of, you know, Keith Richards, you got Mick Jagger. There is something very unique about you and Axel, that voice and that guitar tone. When you hear, for example, the Chinese democracy songs done live with you and Duff, they they, they suddenly become Guns N' Roses songs. Um, talk to me about that unique relationship and also what was it like playing those songs? Because I would hear them because I went to a bunch of shows and you go, man, that's that's GNR now. And it really sort of brings it to that next level. It it. it changes it for some reason well there's you know i mean there there is something you know that that uh you know i'm trying to think of the right word for it um chemistry just sounds so yeah whatever but it there there's a real thing that happens um between you know duff and and axel and i we play together when we write together or whatever and so that that just happens. It's very combustible. It just happens very naturally. And you just sort of put it together and it sort of got this combustible element to it. And so when I, you know, when we started doing the, the rehearsals for the guns tour and, you know, we started looking at the different songs from Chinese, Chinese democracy, they're great songs. And, and, you know, I, I, there was sort of an interesting thing for me to sort of figure out how to play them my way, you know, but still keep the integrity of the guitar parts and all that kind of stuff. And it was a lot of fun. And, you know, just the, the way that they sound is really, I mean, the songs are intact and we didn't change anything, but there is still, there's an element of, of input of Duff and I that sort of was added to that. And I think it, it's cool. It makes it really fun to play. And, and, and like I said, the integrity of the songs is intact. So it's cool. Yeah. And there's just something in, in, in your fingertips that changes everything. Uh, recently at a show, you had Richard Fortas come out and guest on a song. Uh, talk to me a little bit about Richard, because he's sort of an unsung hero, if you ask me. He he really is a great, great guitarist and a great backing yeah. vocalist. Uh, just quickly talk to me about Richard, because he sort of seems lost in the mix sometimes in these discussions. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I never, I never met any of the, the other guitar players that were in Guns N' Roses prior to my coming back, but Richard was there when I, when we came in. And so, you know, I mean, we, I knew he was going to be there and I think Axel knew that he was probably the right guy to work with me. And that's why he had him come down. I'm not really sure how that happened, but, uh, you know, I, we hit it off as soon as we met and then playing wise, he's really, um, Let's see, like he's technically gifted, but he has his roots are all real old school rock and roll roots. And so that's immediately how we related. And we just have it's just something that happened very naturally. And we got really comfortable immediately. And uh, he's great. And I think he he makes me a better guitar player in the context of Guns N' Roses, for sure, because he's just he's that good a player. So you have to sort of stay on your toes jamming with him, you know. Yeah, you really do. Um, now, I asked you, of course, about the, the future of the, the conspirators, but what do you hope is the future for GNR? Because technically, there really doesn't need to be new music. You could go out and do all of Appetite 
every night and you'd still sell the same amount of tickets. But even though it's not necessary, is it desirable for you to have 10 new songs, 12 new songs or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the figure is exactly, but I, there's definitely a desire, um, you know, for, for me to, to be able to make new music. I mean, that's it's fun playing all the stuff, you know, all the old stuff, and, and we definitely had a blast, especially because I haven't played a lot of that stuff in a long time, and I definitely haven't played it with, with uh, you know, Axel and Duff together in 22 years or something. So the whole not in this lifetime tour was really, really fun and refreshing to do. And the fans were great. And just the whole thing was pretty amazing, but there's still, you know, there's that desire to come up with some new ideas and, you know, whatever. And that's, that's what you're doing it for. It's just the, the, the desire to create new stuff. Yeah. And I think it's important. Um, and, and I know we're, we're running out of time. We had 20 minutes, but I'll just ask you real quick. Uh, what was your take on Axel and ACDC? I, I personally thought he did a great job. I thought the, the, the video clips I got to see were great. Uh, was that a distraction for you or was that like, Hey, way to go, buddy. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it was totally cool. I mean, that was like right at the, the very beginning. And it was, it was really one of those things like, you know, that's a, a crazy, that's a crazy ask, you know, for those guys, you know, to get asked that, to be Axel and to get that sort of thing from ACDC and to say, okay, I'm going to do it and then be faced with that sort of challenge. But he handled it great and he took off and went to go do it. And Duff and I went to go see him play in London and I was just blown away. I was literally floored watching him do all that and like his he i mean he channeled bon scott on all the bon scott songs like nobody's business and there probably is nobody else that could have filled that filled those shoes for for that tour for acdc and so it was really cool and and i mean far be it for for me to go well, i'm i'm proud of you but i was very proud of him you know? yeah i think most of us are now the uh the slash tour with, with miles and brent and and frank and Todd goes all the way and right now until March of 2019. How long do you expect this tour to go? Is it something that we will be talking about in 2020 or is it like, we're going to do this till next summer and then I've got to run off and do some GNR stuff. And I'm sure miles is doing alter bridge. Yeah. It's, it's slated for till, till uh, pretty much the end of next summer at this point. So we we're doing this U S tour now and then uh, doing and then guns N' roses is going to do some Eastern Asia, uh, uh, Middle so, East and, and right, in South November, African, Phil, uh, Philippine, November. Kuala Lumpur and all that. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, uh, and uh, Abu Dhabi and, and uh, South Africa. And then, and then I think December off and then January, um, conspirators are starting uh doing uh asia and australia and then europe and then we take march and april off so miles can do uh get in the studio with with alter bridge and then uh let's see uh may we're doing south america and then june we're going to do the european festivals and stuff and then july uh august we're coming back to the states and doing some u.s and canada stuff and i think that'll pretty much do it and so like in you know in march and april work with guns and then come back uh for the fall and continue on with that so that seems to be the plan it, it's it's amazing after 30 some years in the biz to be this this busy all the time and of course i heard you say canadian dates so that i'm very very much 
looking forward to, and hopefully we'll we'll get to come out and see one. Um, Slash, I know you only had about 20 minutes today, so thank you. Thank you for your time. Absolute pleasure. Oh, man, it's great talking to you, as always. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll see you around at some point and uh, like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and I will say this from the bottom of my heart. I, I saw, like I said, multiple GNR shows, and I saw, of course, Slash's show at the Metropolis here in my it, you always deliver, whether it's Brent Fitz or whether it's it's Duff McKagan or whoever's on stage, just it's always delivers. And uh, just thank you for that. Oh, cause it's, I, it's, it's, it's been great. I, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate I mean, you know, the thing is, is, I love what I do. You know, I mean, I love having the opportunity to be able to go out and play. So anytime, anytime there's a, 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 a amp to plug into and a stage to get on top of, you know, I'm always happy to be there. Yeah, uh, and I'm and I'm there. I'm happy to be there in the audience as well. Thank you, sir, uh, and we will see you uh, All soon. Right. All right, man. See you later, bitch. Take care. Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. Cheers. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to uh, Slash, especially for having called in on a Sunday afternoon to to chat about living the dream and everything else. Uh, just always great to hear to hear from Slash, and, and you hear in the interview, I, I mentioned that I saw a bunch of GNR shows, and sincerely, they really were great. There really was something about this tour and this lineup. It's not, it wasn't just a cash cow or just cashing in or, or just, you know, paint by numbers or going through the motions. You could sense that that lineup with Richard and Melissa and... They really were, and Frank, really were a band. And, and so, uh, anyway, it's, it's great to hear, and it's great to hear that uh, they, they will continue to tour. And, of course, Slash with, with Mild doing their thing. That's that's fabulous, too. But, uh, hey. Yeah. Let me, let, me, let me suggest, darling, um, playing for three and a half hours is not going through the motions. <laughs> that's right. Definitely not just going through the motions if you're playing for three and a half hours that's putting it all out there and to use a sport sporting vernacular that's leaving it on the field that's leaving it on the ice oh it really is and and but 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 you know what i'm saying we we've seen reunion tours and other shows and farewell tours and end of this and or or, or just regular tours where you just know that the band is miserable and they're just showing up for the paycheck and like you can sense it in the in the delivery of the songs it, it's very sort of clinical and mechanical and and that was not GNR that it just wasn't there there was blood sweat and tears and and love and passion in what they were doing and it was just nice to see because you said it before we all said it nobody was going to bet the farm on this getting past April of 2016, we all thought they'll do Vegas. They they might do Coachella because they might kill themselves before Vegas, and then it'll implode, and we'll go back to, you know, talking about Metallica and Kiss and all these bands, and 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 it lasted two years. So you know, anyway, stunning, stunning. Uh, Tony Dolan is is also very stunning. He is as uh, well quaffed as I am, as I am, and of course that is an exceptionally stunning look. It is. Um, beautiful <laughs> see but venom inc is out there he the the last album is called ave the first album under venom inc and they recently replaced their drummer we do talk about that but here is something that is very very interesting the reason i put it on this guns and roses 
episode, for the lack of a better word, is that Tony is spending his time right now, and I don't want to get too much into details because I do want people to listen, but he is studying Duff McKagan's baseline for an upcoming project that does involve the Guns N' Roses legacy, right? Um, are you familiar with 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 Venom and Tony and and all that stuff? Um, I don't know that that much about Venom, um, but you know about Newcastle. I, I I was about to say yeah. I, I do know that Tony's from Newcastle, and in that respect, I've always had a perspective that those Northern English boys really have a terrific approach to rock and roll um, because predominantly it's a rundown area. Um, the south of England gets all the financing. Life is much harder in the north of England and there is a more of a, um, a hard blue collar attitude in the populace up there and it comes out musically. I mean, you know, Stings from Newcastle, um, Priest the Northern Boys, um, even David Coverdale is from up around Yorkshire. Um, and they definitely personify the idea that rock and roll at its heart is a blue collar medium, um, that it's a gritty, earthy form of expression. And I love it when it's anti-authoritarian, and I love it when it speaks truth to power, and I love it when it takes on the man and flips him off. So, Tony doing GNR stuff, yeah, Tony, go out there and flip the man off. Yeah, and, and you'll see, when, when you get to the interview and he reveals exactly why he's learning Duff's parts and what it's for, you'll be like, oh, really? All right, so, so we'll get to that. And you did, of course, mention David Coverdale. Uh, they have a new set coming out soon. I haven't interviewed David since 2014. I know that sounds sort of obnoxious to sort of say it that way, but I haven't, and I need to get him on there because I think you and I would have a great conversation about David and, you know, the era, the MTV era. But, of course, before the MTV era, Whitesnake were very much not a power rock power you know glam metal whatever you want to call it they, they were very very blues based and very sort of different um you know so we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that but let's let's let tony talk and the one thing i can say folks is if you ever talk to tony just let tony talk because you you say hello and 45 minutes later he, after the story he tells you he will say hello because he loves to talk and i love that in an interview uh, so here is the one, the only, from Venom Inc., the Demolition Man, Tony Dolan. We are speaking with Tony Dolan of Venom Inc. Tony, a great pleasure to talk to you again. We have done these interviews in the past over at Heavy Montreal, recently at uh, the Piranha Bar in Montreal. Just absolutely always fun to chat with you. Well, you know, Mitch, it, uh, thank you for having me again. And it's always a great pleasure, you know, since Montreal, since having Montreal. And of course, like you say, just recently at Piranha Bar, eh, eh, you're always a joy to talk to. You know, I like to talk. I'm from the north of England. It's kind of what we do as a pastime. 
So uh, it's always a great pleasure to see you, but also to talk and, you know, hear the stories. You've met everybody there is to meet and and uh, we get to share good time and good stories. And that's always a great pleasure. So thank you for having me on. Yeah. And of course, now the show is on Westwood One, which is all over the States. We get it on Spotify, on Amazon Alexa, on Apple Podcasts, uh, TuneIn, Google Play, et cetera, et cetera. So, so welcome to this uh, uh platform because i've done interviews with you for other places but this is the first time here and it'll be fun but uh, let's quickly talk about jeff mantis dunn i had recently interviewed kk downing and then i came down to this show at the piranha bar and he's wearing this big giant (laughs) kk downing shirt i mean literally from head to toe yeah Uh, it it was like a big giant kk downing condom quite frankly um But 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 talk to me about that relationship that 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 Jeff has with one of Rock's premier uh, guitarists. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, he. It's no secret that Jeff was completely and utterly inspired by KK, uh, and and coming out of a Judas Priest show in '79, he just wanted to be that. He wanted to be. He saw KK as being everything that a guitar, heavy metal guitar god, should look like and be like. Um, and hence he went and bleached his hair blonde straight away and bought himself a flying V, you know, and, and uh, you know, maybe he became the extreme version of K.K. Downing, yeah, but that's, you know, he's always had a great love for the guy and, and his performance and his contributions to Judas Priest, and, you know, Jeff recently had a, a heart attack. We we, we did an right. Australasian tour, and then we came back to Europe and we did a, a whole three-week European tour with suffocation and uh, and um, everything was cool. It was a lot of work. We were a bit tired, but he went home. Uh, we had a Skype meeting a couple of weeks after that and uh, he paused himself during the meeting because he thought he had some indigestion. Ended up he had a huge heart attack, died for five minutes. They managed to bring him back to life and, uh, and that was a, a, a significant sort of uh, punctuation mark in our lives i flew straight over there of course the next morning i was by his side uh, and we got him through it and and he's getting back you know his heart's fixed now mentally he's trying to stabilize himself but what was i think what was significant in his life is is that um just literally just before we did the european tour he had the first conversation in his life with kk who was so humble very much like jeff where people come to Mantis when we're out and say, oh, my God, you're the reason I began to play guitar. And Jeff so was very shocked by that, that he his influence reached that far. You know, of course, Venom has a legacy, but but as a, as a musician, he never considered that he was influencing young musicians. And it's something that I, I focused on very heavily with Empire of Evil, of course, but also with Venom Inc., because I wanted him to meet fans and to hear their stories to give him that validity of, of his significance as a musician. And the conversation he had with Kia he said, you know, i got to take a fanboy moment. You are the reason I did everything, told him the whole story. And Kia very much like Jeff, was very humble and said, wow, I didn't realize, and I'm so touched by that, and um, thank you so much. And it's that humbleness. Since then, they've been texting each other all the time. Of course, KK was aware of Jeff's uh, heart attack, so, you know, um, I keep saying, oh, has Kevin text you today? <laughs> and then he gets really pissed and goes, you know, go Kevin, stop it. But, That's um, funny. But it's nice that they have, 
that connection now and that Jeff feels, I guess, legitimized, you know, by his hero. Uh, and um, I wish I'd had the same kind of uh, proximity to, to Lemmy, my hero, you know, but um, uh, that's how it is, of course. But um, it's wonderful. It's, it's really, really wonderful and very significant for Jeff. And I think uh, that poignant point of him being able to speak to KK and, and have that validity and also his death experience means that on stage he's performing like he's never performed before. And I've seen, right. you know, I've been on stage with him for, I don't know, in excess of a thousand shows now. And uh, I'm seeing him in a different light when he plays. It's almost like he's playing, uh, you know, because... Possessed, he, right? He's, he's almost possessed. Yeah. So let me let me cut you off for one second here, because I've got a bunch of questions that have come up from your answer. First of all, when a young musician comes up to you and says... You have influenced me. That has got to be the absolute greatest compliment. Because if you say, well, I love that album, or I love that song, or I loved your show last night, those are all very nice. Yes. But it's not the same as you influenced me. You changed who I am. I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's right? That, that's the greatest yeah, compliment. Yeah, no, completely. That's absolutely right, Mitch. It's like, it's like, you know, all of those accolades are like, great show, can't wait to see you, wow, I love that, and uh, yeah, all of that is is part of an, uh, an entertainment experience, like seeing a movie, but but, uh, you know, uh, um, you enjoy that, but but yes, you're right, when, you, when someone says, you are the reason that I decided to do it, that changes it completely, because you Different have ballgame. actually... Yeah, you you've given someone not only a, um, a, a, a meaning, but uh, you've changed you've changed who they are. Yes, you're right, and and um, that kind of influences how, how do you say thank you or what, what do you say? You can you can only be humbled by that yep. um, and shocked Agreed. at the same time. Yeah. Now um, I do want to get to his heart attack, but that is such a serious subject that I just want to push the other stuff quickly here out of the way. Yeah. Uh, speaking of influential bands, you are going to be playing in Chicago on April 27th, 2019 <laughs> with the original Mit- uh, Misfits, Glenn Danzig, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that has got to be an incredible thrill because that's, you know, it's nice to be the headliner at your own shows and so on and so forth. But when you get a chance to open for a band that has influenced the course of music, yeah. Um, just talk to me about that gig. And will there be more? Is is this, this a really a one-off? Thank you very much. Merci, bonsoir. Or are we going to see a lot more of these sort of combinations? Well, I think I think there's a possibilities, of course. I mean, uh, we did Blackest of the Black uh, last year, I think, very early in the year, uh, uh, which is Glenn Danzig's festival in uh, in Silverado Canyon in California, uh, which was very nice. We were invited to play there. And we had talked to the Misfits management uh, who had been on tour when we were on tour about possibly doing shows together. However, it wasn't the original. Uh, it was going to be Jerry's, and and uh, that was all cool. And then Glenn's doing a 30th anniversary tour in October. They contacted us. Tim Bora contacted us and said he'd really like you guys to be on the tour. Well, we were you know, shocked and, and very happy about that. So it was like amazing. And then we got um, we played Metal Allegiance after we saw you just recently, as uh, opening for the Metal Allegiance at the Gramercy in New York. Jerry was there. I had a quick just hi how are you doing and how's everything going and then tim bora and management called and said look we're doing this original misfits they've you know they're 
put themselves together for this Chicago show and they want you to be on the bill. Um, and, you know, I was shocked and excited and happy all at the same time, you know, to get this opportunity. You know, as soon as I then mentioned it, because we had to keep it quiet for a while until they announced, um, you know, everybody's saying, like, Tony, Tony, get them to come here, get them to go there, get them to play here. <laughs> it doesn't quite work like that, but I, I will mention it, that everybody wants to see them. But I think... Yeah, it's a one-off now. If it goes well, then and the guys want to do some more, I'm sure there will be other shows, and and I'd be very honoured. But I would never presume that we'd be able to do them with them, you know, because uh, it would yeah, be great, like, though. It would be great. And by the way, you are, you are right, though. People assume that because you're on a bill with a band that you you're suddenly their best friends and you can get all <laughs> kinds of right because I, I mean I, Alan Niven who, who used to manage Guns N' Roses uh, co-hosts these episodes with me and of course Great White toured with K.K. Downing and Judas Priest back in 84 Defenders of the Faith the whole thing yep. and when yep. you asked to ask Alan about how was it he's like Mitch we never saw them no, exactly <laughs> right? Right. that's exactly it do you have any great Guns N' Roses stories by the way well, funny enough, uh, this one uh, probably violent, not, and specifically Guns N' Roses yeah. as a direct correlated story. But um, I worked in the theatre, of course, and I, I uh, worked for Queen on their musical um, as a head technician um, running their musical in town. And one of the cast, a lot of the cast, because it was Queen music all night, a lot of the cast went away and did other things de- dealing with Queen's music and performing all over the world. And one of the the leads in the show contacted me last year, and he's putting together uh, a rock uh, musical. I guess it's not a musical as in a theatre show, but it's a. He was the singing. He was the singer in um, Australia's Pink Floyd tribute band. Oh wow! And that's a great tribute all, band, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And he enjoyed it so much, and that came to an end. And he he contacted me and said, "Would you be up for playing bass if I put together this project?" And I said, "Yes, yeah, sure. What is it?" And it's a it's exactly like the Australia Pink Floyd, but it's Guns and Roses. So I've been oh, wow. spending the last five months uh, learning all the all the tough bass lines for Guns and Roses. So um, I mean, if I get the the space and the time in the gaps where we're not uh, performing, I'm going to be out doing this. Uh, this series of shows doing purely Guns N' Roses material. So it's it's kind of strange where, of course, everybody's aware of Guns N' Roses and and, uh, and the superb uh, uh, Appetite for Destruction and, and their lineage, but I never considered I'd be actually learning all of the material to perform it. So I'm wow. quite excited by it. And I think it'll be... I think it'll be pretty cool. It seems to be, he sent me through some demos of a couple of the tracks with all of the uh, lead voices on, uh, you know, females, males, all from a uh, uh, rock musical uh, background. And it sounds amazing. So I thought, wow, this could be really, really cool, you know? Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah. Let, let yeah. me ask you one question about that. Are, because when you hear those songs, there's a certain simplicity to them it's just straight ahead rock and roll but learning them and performing them i'm assuming right duff is no chump i mean th- those are some no. right so so just quickly talk to me about that is is it how difficult is it to sort of get that spirit get that tone get those songs down it, it's right i think yeah i think that you've hit you've hit the nail on the head there you know i i, I think classic Classic music, you know, and I, and I would, you know, cite things like from Cream and and uh, Sabbath and you know uh, uh, the Who, the way Pete Townsend played, or you know, um, there's something 
it's very different. You know, Hendricks played with heart. You know, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan played with heart. You know, the great players, B.B. King, you can go say B.B. King, you play one note 5,000 different ways and make you cry, laugh and sing all at the same time. Uh, so it's about it's about how you put yourself into that music. And I think the reason Guns N' Roses for me was so successful, yes, it seems very simple. It's just some rock and roll. But, you know, we did some covers once for for an EP, myself and Mantis, and um, uh, we picked a, a bunch of songs that were influential to us, Motorhead, Kiss, Judas Priest. But the hardest one to actually sing was we picked an ACDC song. And the reason that was the hardest one to do, even though I don't have a falsetto voice or, you know, I'm not Gene Simmons and I, and I haven't got the growl that Lemmy had, I found it much harder to do the Bon Scott because his songs were from his life experience. They're like the greatest blues man. You know, when he talked about, you know, Rosie, he knew who Rosie was, you know, he, he knew that woman. Um, Jailbreak, everything was from experience, you know. And, you know, you can sing the words, but if you haven't experienced the experience, you can't be that thing. And that's what I found with uh, listening to Roses uh, and the way they play is these these characters who played this music were living that. They were living that. They weren't just buying the makeup and buying the hair and buying the clothes and buying the instruments and living in L.A. and pretending to do it. This is who they were. They, they took their influences and those come out in their playing. And so it's easy to play the notes, but, but you have to put your passion in. You can't it. capture the soul, right? You, no, you exactly. Yeah. You know, all the notations there, the song will sound like that. But if there's no soul, it, isn't, it doesn't sound right. So that's kind of what I've been advising the vocalists with this thing going, this sounds really good the way you're singing it, but, you know, be it, you know, live it, sing as if you were Axel, as if you were that kid, as if you were angry or upset or distressed or whatever it is that he was feeding off inside his own anxieties and his own uh, um, life and let that sing out. So look for something inside yourself. Don't right. just sing the words because it, it, it then doesn't feel right, you know? So so that's actually very cool, this whole Guns N' Roses thing. But uh, let me move on to, to some, some other sort of rapid topics uh, before we get to, to, to Mantis. Um, okay. You were on tour. Uh, I saw you as, you, as we mentioned recently, in Montreal. There yeah. was a new drummer along for the tour. Um, yes. Talk to me about that. Is that the new drummer along for the tour, or is that the new drummer along for the band and the rest of the ride? I mean, I, I, well, you know, the the whole idea of putting this together was for the fans and to the uh, venue thing and to play the legacy. Um, there was never an intention to make an album or to go down that route with it. Just purely play live shows. Uh, reach the places that Kronos or Venom had never been to before, uh, play clubs as well as anything else that came along, not discriminating between sizes of venues, but get to the fans, get to the proximity of the fans. And I wanted to play the whole catalogue, all the songs nobody had ever heard before, B-size, you name it. Um, that was really, really good. But I think once we then got offered to do an album and then we signed with Nuclear Blast, things got a bit more... Legitimate, if you more real, like to say it. more real, yes. Yeah. And of course, when reality hits in that way, it becomes about money and ego and all of that. And I, I guess naively, um, because I just want to play rock and roll and I just want to be in there 
playing out all the time. I didn't. I'm not too worried about the peer deals and the dealings and all of that. Although I do all the business management and for us, I it's not my focus. My focus is the fans and the music. That's it. That's why I'm there. You know, I'm not there for the five star hotels or whether I've got a jacuzzi. I'm there to play shows every night and enjoy myself and have the fans enjoy themselves. So the politics. Become to be started to outweigh uh, the product, and and I and I, you know, I I pulled back from that. Um, there was a lot of discontentment. Uh, Abaddon then had, was having a baby, wanted to take a month out. We had a European tour to fulfil. He wanted to, uh, I guess, he wanted to uh, cancel it and put it further back into the year. The label was pressuring us because we'd taken over six months before we'd done the European tour to support the album. The management said we can't push it back because we're going to go to America. So logistics meant we had to do it. He agreed that we could use a dep. And Mr. Kling, who's sitting in the drums, had just done our US tour as our sound man. But also he knew, he's a drummer, a very good one for the absence. And he knew the material. So I thought, well, if we're going to use a dep while Abaddon sits out for a month of March, then we should we should get Jeremy. We could we did have offers from drummers. We could have got somebody else. But I thought if we take Jeremy, he's not a personality. It doesn't look like uh, I mean a, a, as much of a platform personality as some other drummers like Mr. Barker or or Nick Sharon from uh, X Exciter or people like that. I thought. You know, he's a technician. People, He was working with us. He's got his own band. He's launching his own album. So people will know automatically he's only there to fill in until Abaddon comes back. However, that month that we were waiting for Abaddon to come back, things went all a bit uh, strange, let's say, and all a bit wonky. And then it, I still assumed he would be coming back after March. Um, he didn't. Um, we then had to fulfill some other shows. He still wasn't back. And um, it seems discontent has set in uh, and he wants to do his own thing now. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, in the future, who knows what's going to happen. But I wanted to continue playing. We had a good album. We wanted to keep promoting it. We had show offers. Um, Danzig came up. You know, so many things have been coming up. Next year, we were booking for Vakken and, and, and Pitfest, Metal Frenzy. And I thought, well, I can't stop the car you know, uh, to park up while we're on a roll. So right. we want to get the new album done. We want to keep playing shows. If he runs alongside and he jumps back on, then that's what he does. If he doesn't, then we we we'll continue with Jeremy until such times as we don't. You know, um, but I mean, the advantage of Jeremy, I think, is um, he knows the material. He knows how it should sound. He knows how it it should be played. And um, his style is very different to what we're doing in Venom. But he's adapted himself. He's very well studied. He's studied all the Abaddon tapes, all of the music, all the original recordings. And he plays, you know, to uh, click tracks from the original recording. So he plays them as they're meant to sound. So, you know... Um, yeah, it, work, it, it works out. So, um, yeah. well, okay, let me ask you this then. One of the best shows I've seen this year was Halloween, the uh, Pumpkins United tour where they got, the, you know, yes. Kai and the older guy, Michael Kiske and the older guys. Phenomenal show. Yeah. Would, yeah. That, would that ever be of interest to you to, to, to somehow get to Kronos and somehow – I know that right now there's bad blood and blah, blah, blah. We know that, but yeah. would there be a point where you say, you know what, for the fans, for the show, 
You know, in all honesty, Mitch, in all honesty with myself, is right. that, um, you know, I know the situation between the three of the guys. You know, they were always a car crash, always a car crash, um, <coughs> working together. And I thought um, when the anniversary, first anniversary came up, uh, 30-year anniversary or whatever it was of Welcome to Hell and Black Metal, I thought that was the opportunity because my friends in Destruction had had an anniversary of themselves, of Destruction. They played Vakken and they got all the drummers that had been on, all the musicians who wanted to do it, who had been in the band over the years. And they did this mammoth performance of all of their material um, uh, with all of these people. And I just thought, you know, to have Clive Archer turn up, sing a song, um, when I was in the U.S. on one tour, we were in Boston and Mike Hickey came down, who'd been in done the Metal Black album and had replaced Mantis for Calm Before the Storm. I got him straight up on stage to do Cantus Battery with us. Um, recently in London, we had Al Bonds turned up to see a show who was uh, with us for the Primeval Temples of Ice albums. And so I said, well, you got to bring your guitar down and get up. And he did. He got up and joined us for Temples of Ice. And... The response was amazing. And I think, well, you know, of course, we played with Anton, who's uh, Cronus's brother as well, uh, you know, who played on Metal Black and the Hell album and Resurrection. Uh, and for me, I think we missed that opportunity because they were all being pedantic, because they were too focused on how much money they could make, who was going to be in charge, who was going to own the this and rights to this and that and the other. And I said, guys, you're totally fucking missing the point here. Um, this isn't about, you know, battering over 10 bucks here and there or who's going to have the merch rights this is about coming together to celebrate the legacy of what you did the music that influenced the fans and it's for the fans so you know who cares we make some cheap shirts let them have them we we do a live recording and let them have it give it away if we have to if we make it about money it becomes something completely different you know uh, and it shouldn't be about that it should just be about everybody together I it think should be. If, and it would be great for festivals, yeah. by the way. I mean, maybe, you know, talking about cost and being real, maybe it's cost prohibitive to, to be on the road doing smaller clubs in America with nine guys in the band. Okay, maybe. Yeah. But the festival well, run for WAC in Sweden Rock, uh, yeah. Heavy Montreal, uh, you know, Hellfest, where these guys. It would be a bonanza, and and yeah. Anyway, I mean that that was my original thinking on it was exactly that was you start off with uh, uh, um, you know the band is the band and you bring on you bring on those people so you bring on uh, Clive Archer and you do the demos um, and okay maybe it's me Jeff and and Kling or whatever but you bring them on you do those demos then you bring the next guys on and you do some tracks from that album and ultimately you end up with Abaddon on Kronos on you know and they play you know Seven Gates of Hell and some classics and it's like you know you, you take yourself through the lineage of the music from the beginning demos all the way to the ultimate uh, black metal you know uh, and in bring the characters on is like, you know, is you can see this thing growing, you know, not start with the original three, but start with everybody else and work back over. So you end with the original three. And mm. I think it's a, I think it would be a great thing. I think um, if they were if it was able to be done, maybe I could do it uh, uh, because because I'm not focused on the money, because I'm not focused on the politics. Maybe it could happen. I haven't lost sight of that. And I think very much like you just said, for festivals, ultimately for the fans, what a kind of way to go out, you know, to show that they, the yeah. band and everybody in it is part of the same thing. And, yes. and it's about the music. Yes. So, so there you go. You, 
you're, you're going to officially have to put me on the case. Give me Kronos's number. I'll give him a call and I'll say, <laughs> listen, you stupid. No. <laughs> It's time, uh, but I'll say it. I'll say it more politely, uh, and just real okay. quick because we are getting to sort of the, the the half hour mark, and so we have to start wrapping up. But yes. uh, Mantis, of course, had this incredibly serious medical condition, uh, yeah. and what was it? Eleven weeks, uh, 11, right? Back on the road. Yes. Or, <laughs> yeah, which is somewhat yeah. crazy because you know being playing a show in your hometown where you get to go home and go to your bed and and pick the food out of your fridge, and then being yeah. on the road eating you know terrible food and not getting a lot of the very uh, talk to me about that. How does that impact you? Because it's not just a dude. I mean, here's your, it's your buddy, it's your bandmate, yeah. it's your it's your living, you know, because it's my brother, he's my brother. Um, you know? and that that's it. When he when it happened to him, the first thing he said when I got there the very next morning I arrived at the hospital um and he obviously was very emotional, but the first thing he said was like, "Am I going to be able to play again?" You know, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to play again. And I said, you will be playing again. How you play is not the point, you know, but you will play always. I don't worry about that. Focus on getting yourself better. And he was determined. Fortunately, we were of an age, so we do keep ourselves quite fit. Even when we're on the road, we try and eat pretty good. Right, but it's hard. It's, it's hard. very hard. It's very, very hard. And, um, and, you know, it's been showing, I think, on stage – He's excelling himself and he looks very young. Afterwards, he looks shagged. He looks done in, you know. But, um, you know, we didn't consider it was only 11 weeks from point of death till we were on stage in Finland at a Porosphere festival. And then we did Alcatraz and Bloodstock. And we probably had about 60,000 people in total. Um, and the support that they gave that he was on stage made us realize that it had only been 11 weeks. Because up to that point, we weren't thinking like how long it was we were just thinking how do we get how do we do this and uh, people promote us we had shows and and whatnot to promote as agents everybody was hassling me to go are you going to be able to commit to this are you going to be able to commit to that and basically i had to say look this is my brother who's just died and got back to life that's my focus if we get on stage and do one show and he turns to me and said i can't do this anymore then that's the end if he gets on and he said uh, yep, let's do it. Then I will support him to do that. But I said, you know, it's not something that I want him to worry about doing or or, or not doing. I just want to see if he if, if that's what he wants to do. Then I'm with him 100. percent And yeah. so we never applied any pressure. It was totally within his uh, ballpark, and and it showed the tenacity, uh, the strength. And the depth of, of of the musicality in the man to be standing on stage in front of a festival crowd 11, 11 weeks, literally after you died, performing, you know, and giving everything. Because we don't, you know, Mitch, we don't go on stage and give, we don't call in and we don't uh, give half measure. We leave ourselves on stage when we go. So, yep. you know, when I, we I agree with that, by the way, because the first time I saw you was at Heavy Montreal, where 2014 or 15. Yes. And I didn't know what to expect. And I was blown away. And listen, I've seen thousands of shows. I don't get impressed by somebody who calls it in. I don't get impressed with the guy wearing the flannel shirt st staring at his shoes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the band and was... it's venom and it's venom yes. at the end of the day you know it's like you you can't play a song like Sons of Satan or Black Metal or Witching Hour or Live Like an, you can't play those kind of songs by calling it in you have to commit to them 
uh, much like you know the punk guys you you commit to it it means something and and um, and that's what we do on stage so being fit and normal we would come off stage absolutely drained so you can imagine how much it, toll it was taking when he was still in a, a kind of relatively recuperative yeah. uh, um, and how hard it must have been before it actually happened because, you know, that stuff, there, there's a buildup. You, you can sort of feel yourself getting slower and more tired. And uh, how yes. scared were you when, when you heard the news? I mean, did it shake you to the core or were you yes. more of the, okay, so it's not like, eh, yeah. the doctors have got this. It was like, oh, life-changing yeah, fear. It, it okay. happened so quickly and I'd literally just been talking to him and he seemed fine. And it shocked him as well. What we did find out is because it's hereditary, his father died of it. It's a hereditary condition. Um, and he was only young when his father died. Um, uh, of course, medical advancement wasn't wasn't what it is now. So his father wasn't saved, but he was saved. But uh, we realized then that all of those past uh, uh, experiences where he'd complained about indigestion or he had a slight pain when we were running for a connection through an airport, dragging our asses with our cases. This was all uh, signaling that this was about to happen. But very much, very much, not like an epiphany, but very much like I said about the actual the, the actual punctuation on this thing, is that the, he was saying, I died, and I was saying, but you're alive. You did die, but why are you alive? Why did this happen? You know, if he, he went to another village, which was two or three minutes away from his home, and the paramedics and the doctor said, if you'd been at home two or three minutes, that was it. We wouldn't have been able to get to you and save you. Wow. If, he'd been, if we'd been halfway across Colombia or Brazil or Japan or heading through Indonesia and it happened on a bus or a plane, he may not have been saved. Just so happened that after all of that touring, he was at home, he went to the village, which put him in an accessibility uh, position for the paramedics and the doctor to be able to get to him and keep him alive. And I said, that is, there's reason behind that. You know, there's reason. Why after all of these years, you're talking to a man who's 56 years old, has had a hero since he was a kid. Um, and just before you have a heart attack, you make a connection with your hero, with KK Downing. And now you're texting and you have a relationship. What after all these years? I said, do not think in some weird way this is all symbolic. This is all, you know, gives you your purpose. Yep. Um, and I think that's what he's realizing, you know, it's like what well, this is, you know, when we began Empire of Evil, I swear to God, Mitch, Empire of Evil in 2011, he called me and said, do you want to do some music again? I had a great job. I, I didn't need any money. I didn't need to be doing any music. I was quite happy doing what I was doing. And I said, OK. You're asking me, I'll say yes, of course, because he's my brother. And I said, but if you, after six months, if you try and put your guitar under your bed, I'm going to snap your neck. So I said, no more putting the guitar under the bed. If we do it, we do it till we don't do it. Uh, and uh, Or we die doing it. And he's beaten me because obviously he's died and now he's still doing it. So I've got to die and then do it again as well. Yeah, well so. we, we don't want you to die. We, no, no we, we don't. We don't. Not. But, but uh, jokes aside, though, have you taken any stock in your own personal life i mean do you do yes. you look at the smoking do you look at the, the 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 whatever and or maybe a fight you had with a family member and just say you know what it's really not worth it let's let's yeah you you put all of those things into a perspective and it is perspective you know when you look down you think that's that's nothing you know i, I i've for the last i think 20 30 years i've lived in the moment you know i haven't worried about the second that's passed 
and I haven't worried about what's going to happen the second that's coming. I've been in the moment, and this has just confirmed to me that that's where you need to be. Uh, there'll always be things that you'll worry about and stress about, but you've got to let go of them and, and think, you know, it, you know, that gas bill, that bald tire, that angry uh, relative, in an instant you could fall over and it's all worthless. It all means nothing. Yep. So, you know, take every moment as the most precious thing you've got and get the best out of it. And if that's eating that thing you want to eat or listening to that thing you want to listen or doing that thing you want to do, then just do it, you know. Um, I think life's life's very brief and it's very rich and, and you want to take everything you can out of it. But, yep. you know, being angry all the time and, and, and being obnoxious is just a waste of your own energy and your own time where you could be enjoying yourself. And so, you know, we exceptionally found that- fleeting. Uh, life is exceptionally yes. fleeting. And so uh, I'll wrap it up on this. Ave, of course, had, came out uh, last year. Yep. Uh, great reviews. Fans were, were very thrilled to have new music from the band or music from from you guys. Yeah. Where are we in terms of the next new album and and getting that out there and then starting that touring cycle all over again? Well, yes, quite. Well, at the minute, we're going, we're going to have a kind of a, a medium pace to the end of the year. We've got uh, October 18th, we play in a uh, festival in Spain. And then uh, from about the 24th, we start with uh, Danzig with uh, six shows or seven shows running California, ending in Irvine, starting in Portland. That's with the Danzig 30th anniversary tour. And then after that... Um, I go to Japan to do some more bass clinics, but we're just going to focus on getting the album together, the new album together and prepared and ready so that we can uh, release uh, the first form within the first four months of uh, 2019 and then get straight out to tour because we have we have everything on the table. South America again, Asia, Japan wants us to go back, of course, a, a full American tour. Um, and so... And then we have the Misfit thing in April, and there could be a couple of other big things happening, uh, possibly one-offs, possibly more than one-offs. So we're kind of trying to prepare for that with uh, with with everything that's coming in. So yeah, we want to. We were so happy with the album, and we were inspired ourselves to go. Okay, if we're going to do music, then let's just make it the best we can possibly make it. And so far, what we have for the, the new album uh, far outweighs what we did on. Ave, but then that's kind of who me and Jeff are. We're never, we're never happy to sit back. We want to challenge ourselves and make it as hard as we can to push ourselves, and we push each other, and that means we get the best out of each other. So hopefully by March, April, we'll have the new album ready to go, and the first uh, Canadian, American, North American tour that will uh, will be where we'll kick off and we'll get going with the new album. So yeah, it's all quite exciting. Yeah, and I can't wait. And of course. Uh... I will, of course, do my best to try to get you over here to heavy Montreal again. And and, I, and by the way, I did mention it to to KK when I spoke to him after we met. I said, yeah. hey, Venom Inc. wants to play Montreal, and they want you to come and do a song with them. And he was like, okay, if that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so we'll do well, it. Well, you know, I, for me, it would be amazing because uh, obviously leading up to Jeff's first conversation with him, I said we should, we should get him on the album and get him to play something because I – just to have Jeff look like a 12-year-old boy with a grin on his face that he won't wipe off for the next 20 years will be worth having Kiki in the studio. Uh, but to be able to be on stage with him, I think, you know, 
He might have a second heart attack, so we, maybe we don't want to do that, you know? You know? It'd be like giving him the best Christmas present I could ever give him, and, and that would be worth everything to me because of what he's been through. So, yep. And the I fans would, love, would love it. So everybody would win with that present. Uh, yeah. Tony, always, always a pleasure. You can uh, always count on me to, to, to keep folks informed on what you're doing. Uh, happy to do an interview anytime. Uh, talk about the next tour, the Misfits the tour, the next album. Whenever you have uh, another moment and want to do some more, let us do it. Open awesome. invitation. Uh, thank you so much. And, and, you know, for your time, it's always a pleasure, Mitch. And, and uh, I wish you the best, Alan, of course, as well. And, uh, yeah, I'll keep you updated with whatever we're doing. And thank you for your generosity always towards us. It means a great deal. Yes. And, of course, when you get back to uh, my part of the world, uh, I will take you out to Chinatown or an Indian restaurant, whatever you want, instead of doing catering. Uh, we'll have a nice sit-down meal on a treat on me. So there you go. Absolutely. Well, that's that's. I'll get I'll get the booze. You get the food then, and that's an absolute deal. Absolutely. Perfect 100%. deal. Thank you, sir. Merci beaucoup, as we like to say up here, and uh, we shall do this again very soon. Merci, merci aussi, and au revoir, and speak to you soon. Thank you so much, Mitch. Yes. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. And a very big thank you to Tony Dolan of Venom Inc. and that project. Oh, my Lord. Uh, he is going to get into a show or they're going to put together a show very much like the Queen Extravaganza. And I don't want to call it a tribute to Guns N' Roses, but it's going to be like this Guns N' Roses Extravaganza. What do you think of that? First of all, that you were part of something that now here we are 30 years later that people put together as as a show i mean you didn't just make music you you touched a generation well yes and anything that's as successful as appetite was and i mean you know you, you look at countless bands there there are so many ways that you can find an interest in making a movie or doing a show um it, it's it's a good it's good source material. The story of Guns N' Roses, yeah, that's a movie. I can see that being made at some point. Um, whether we tell a whole story or all the stories, I very much doubt. But <laughs> you could definitely make a movie out of it. But let's talk about Sean and New Orleans. Um, yes, absolutely. So quickly, her, her... You're, talking, you, you're, you're talking about a city that owns a piece of my soul. Uh, I once lived there for a short time in an area called Marigny, and there's a magic in that place in that its vibe supersedes all the tourist trappings. There is still a vibe in it. The time to go is in the winter when the crowds are, are not there. Then it's truly magic. But it's, it's also a place where if you want to know where rock and roll comes from, you can actually go and stand on the grass of where it started, um, which is a, a park called Congo Square. And that's just on the, uh, if I remember correctly, it's on the northeast side of the quarter. And when the French still own New Orleans, on a Sunday, they used to let those they had imported from Africa go and exercise and indulge in their spiritual music 
in Congo Square. So it's literally the place where African rhythms collide with Caucasian folk music. And that's your fundamental start of rock and roll and jazz. So it's really rather cool that you can actually go and stand where it all started. Of course, when the Louisiana Purchase took place and the French left, um, that expression of spiritual rights was banned and not allowed anymore uh, out of fear of slave rebellion. But there is that place where African rhythms came into our consciousness at that very point. It's really rather cool to be there. It is. And and uh, Great White had a song called Congo Square, didn't you? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, on the, the Hook wrote, album. Wrote, right? Yep, Hooked. wrote a song called Congo Square, and be careful what you write, because I actually lived that experience um, after I wrote the song, which is very bizarre. Um, it was almost like anticipation or prescience, but... That was actually something I lived through um, and how I ended up living in New Orleans. I had to try and put my, my heart and my soul back together after a, um, a, a disastrous relationship. And I ended up going and living with a friend of mine in New Orleans and tried to put myself back together again. Um, you know, put my heart in a gunny sack, dress it up on black on black, take it down to Congo Square, raise it from the dead down there. And my friend helped raise me from the dead down there, but that was Congo Square. Um, but Sean, she's um, an interesting interesting girl. I mean, she used to run a bar down there, to my memory. Uh, I think it was in the Garden District. And um, I have an empathy for that, because I tried running a bar one time too, which was an, just an insane thing to do. Um, but there's that aspect of... What do you do after the gig? Will you go to a bar? So let's open up a bar. Not a good idea. If there are any affluent rock and rollers listening, pass on that idea. I do not recommend it. Yeah, and, and, I, and I know a couple that have tried. Um, what's his name? Kerry uh, Kelly of um, currently a Night Ranger. It runs one down in Vegas. And, and Tim Ripper Owens had tried running one uh, down, I think, in Ohio and it went belly up. It's, it is not the easiest thing, but uh, let's get over to Sean. She talks about her new photography show called They All Axed, A-X-E-D, for you. It is currently, right now, going on at the Boyd Satellite Gallery. And uh, there we go. So we talked to her about that and her, her, her creative output and outlet outside of music. And uh, without further ado, here is Sean. We are speaking with former... White Zombie bassist Sean Yassault. The new um, photograph series is called They All Axed For You, and it's going to be at the Boyd Satellite Gallery in conjunction with the Art for Art's Sake. Uh, Sean, a great, great pleasure. We have talked art once before, and I'm very much looking forward to it, to this one. Um, so welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely love it. So, you know, you're an artist, both musically and, and this visually photography. So, so talk to me specifically about this uh, exposition. It is for, uh, you know, New Orleans. Um, just explain the concept behind it. Well, you know, I, I moved to New Orleans when a white zombie broke up, which, believe it or not, has been almost 20 years. <laughs> so crazy. Anyway, I love this town. I don't think I'll ever leave it. Um, and 
right now is New Orleans Tricentennial Celebration. Yep. So, of course, yeah, the, the oldest city in, in America right now, too. I mean, as far as that kind of establishment. Um, but I really wanted to do a tribute to the Tricentennial as much as I love it here. And I kept having these visions uh, and dreams of animals from the zoo in these places that I love in New Orleans. Um, and I I woke up a couple of times with these different dreams and I thought, wow, I, I think I have to create this. <laughs> you know, They're just very bizarre. One was um, animals lined up along the large live oak trees in Audubon Park. And, and um, that was bizarre because I was with my mother who had just passed away the day before and we were walking through the animals. It was kind of an odd Noah's Ark meets like, uh, you know, the pearly gates or something. <laughs> I don't know. It was so strange, but it really left a, you know, strong image in my head. And then I had another dream of elephants in the Mississippi River kind of storm. I call it storming the Mississippi because they were very ominous and walking slowly and purposefully. And I just decided I had to create these images and um, they've come together really well. And it's taken me almost two years actually to create the show, but I had to get a lot of, um, permission to go into certain venues, the Grand Orpheum Theater, Napoleon House, the Sazerac Bar, a lot of very famous uh, historic spots in New Orleans that I used as backdrops. And then I had just had a really good time putting animals from the New Orleans Zoo, the Audubon Zoo, into these locations. Talk to me about the creative process. For you, is it similar to creating music where just an idea pops into your head and then you just execute? Or is coming up with a visual presentation or a visual art for you very different than a musical art? No, it's very similar. When I get a riff in my head, it just it just pops in there. And it's I, I'm usually actually on an airplane and I have to get a piece of paper and write it down. <laughs> Luckily, I was trained musically at a young age so I can draw up a quick musical staff and kind of jot it down, but it's very much the same. I hear something in my head or I see something in my head and then I've just got to get it on paper and, you know, out there on, you know, musically or on paper, you know, depending on my medium. <laughs> and so, I grew up kind of like this with lots of piano and violin and ballet classes and art classes and a lot of, you know, this was just my life ever since I was a small child. So I, still find myself bouncing around between these various various outlets. Now, now this uh, exhibition is going to run through October, October 2nd to October 31st. Is it something that, because it is very specific to the tricentennial and New Orleans, is really just for the city, or do you see it sort of taking it on the road? Because the, the images are actually quite striking. Whether you live in, in New York or L.A., it's still a striking image. Um, do you see yourself taking this on the road and, and, and having exhibitions across the states and maybe even up here in Canada? Um, I, I, I think it would be great to take it on the road, and I don't see why not. My, my last show um, that we spoke of, Soiree Devolution, was very much based in New Orleans in the 1880s, but um, <laughs> it was still a very much a New Orleans show, and that traveled to New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. So. I'd love to get up to Canada sometime. I'm not sure if I get that far, but... Um, oh, I have ways so... to make that happen. We can make that happen oh. if, you, if you really want. Listen, because <laughs> well, I think... Talk later. I like No, I, I do, like but, but you do have a, a fan base of, you know, white zombie fans, music fans that would love to come up here, get an autograph, get a picture, but also listen to you talk about 
about these things. So I think it would be a great sort of spoken word kind of tour where you present the tableau vivants, you present these pictures. I think fans would get a kick out of it, quite frankly. Well, I would love to. And quite honestly, when you asked if they translate outside of New Orleans, because these are very New Orleans based. And I have to tell you quickly, the title, They All Axed For You, A-X-E-D, is a Meters song, very famous band from New Orleans, The Meters that basically kind of created funk as we know it. And and uh, that's one of their songs. And Dr. John's famous for singing it also. But it's all about uh, going down to the Audubon Zoo and the animals all axed for you. So <laughs> that's the name of it. That's a, another little time to nuance. But what I was going to tell you is that I've actually already had somebody from England, somebody from Los Angeles, and somebody from... Napa have already bought pre pre bought three pieces, so I, d- I think it will translate to other places. <laughs> so, so talk to me. What attracted you to the visual arts? Because after Zombie broke up, you d- you did some musical stuff, but it seems to me that the focus has been the visual medium. First of all, is that a correct assertion? Am I or am I just totally off base? But and mm-hmm. oh right. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You're completely correct. And um, actually, when Rob and I met and started White Zombie, we were both at Parsons. He was there for illustration, which he's amazing at. I mean, you can see it on all of our record work. And um, I was there for photography and and, uh, graphic design. So I did a lot of that work on the the records. And, you know, back, back when there was records, I guess they're back now. But, you know, we took a little CD detour for a while. Um, Anyway, that's I was I moved up to New York to you know focus on visual arts and I've been at the North Carolina School of the Arts uh, before that as a child in ballet. And my last year I broke my foot and switched to visual arts and I ended up getting a scholarship to Parsons to go there for photography. So um, that's it's always been a focus of my life and something I wanted to do. It. So as soon as White Zombie broke up and I moved here to New Orleans. There's just so many beautiful things to photograph here and beautiful people. And I just, I'm very inspired here. So it's it's just constant. I, I have ideas for shows every day. I had to narrow, narrow this one down from like five different ideas. To, to get it into. Um, so, so talk to me then, musically, where are you these days? Is there still this this urgent desire? I mean, I know you've you've done some music and done, but is there an urgent desire to get a a new band started, um, to to record a solo album? Is is there that desire to do something musically, or just you love these art galleries and I'm just going to keep doing that? Um, no, I I still get music in my head and I go. I, I have a studio and I have a, a keyboard and a whole setup up there with you know, amps and speakers and microphones to record banjos and guitars and things. And I actually did something just recently for Waxwork Records. They wanted me to create a soundtrack um, horror song for a uh, horror comic book they had produced. And they wanted a soundtrack for people to listen to it. So they, they pressed these seven inches of my music just this past year. And I also wrote a, a uh, five piece movement for a modern dance piece. That's coming out soon. That's, kind of uh, a bit avant-garde um just mostly piano music but there's some horns and violins in there too and i love composing that's that's really what i also grew up doing my parents were kind of very encouraging um creative types so we had a lot going on in the house as far as you know mediums for for working and um anyway yeah no this is 
I, I still want to make music. I don't okay. necessarily want to get on a band and tour, but I, I, I really do like composing and I'd like to do more soundtrack type um, oriented work. That's interesting. I just, you, you mentioned that your parents were very supportive. Just if you can touch upon that for a second, talk to me about that because, you know, we've all heard the stories of parents over the years that have said, put away the guitar, go study your, your math and, 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 you know, go, go be a doctor somewhere. Uh, what what did they do particularly that was encouraging, and and how would you suggest a parent who has a kid that has an artistic gift treat them? Because at some point you become overbearing and it's just too much. How did they support you? Because obviously you've been exceptionally successful, so they obviously did something right. <laughs> they they were great. I mean, I was a, a very obsessive child, though. I, I worked very hard. I, I wanted all these extra classes. So right as, as soon as I got out of school, you know, I'd be in, I took, let's see, about three or four ballet classes a week until I moved to school of the arts where I was taking two or three a day. And then I'd take, there was like, let's see, three, yeah, a solo class, a partner class, and a group class of piano. So it was three classes a week of piano and a violin class once a week. So that, you know, all that was going on and they, you know, they encouraged it and they were, they were both teachers and just wanted the best for us. So they, you know, any spare penny they had, they, you know, encouraged us to do what we wanted. So, I mean, I, I can't, I can't imagine what else to say except for that. That's the, I think that's great for parents to do that. Right. Just, just and, to stay supportive. Yeah. And like, you know, my, my, parents loved the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and great music and they had Peter Max posters and psychedelic you know Jefferson airplane posters on the walls and you know stuff it was you know it was a very bohemian uh, upbringing lots of, co- lots of their co- college students would come over and stay up late drinking wine discussing things with my parents and, you know it was it was fun <laughs> so there you go that that's the key just invite college students over and drink wine all night no but right, <laughs> right that, that's the key but uh, joking aside though when you put together a gallery how much of the commercialism or how much you know can i sell this comes into the mind is it really just a question of pure art and you do the art for the art's sake or is there always this thing of okay, well, I'm going to have to make it this way so I can sell it? Or I'm go- Where do you draw the line between art and commercialism? I mean, there there really is no line for me. I I have these visions and I have to make them happen. And I I think some of them are probably completely unmarketable, you know. But I just have to create it and hope that somebody appreciates it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. But um, not you know sometimes. I've, I've at least gotten a break even, you know, every show I've done. I've not necessarily had a big profit. Um, people are starting to hear about these photos and, and they're already getting some attention. Like I said, I've already pre-sold a few, which is the first time ever. So um, I don't know if I'm just getting, you know, showing more in galleries over these years and getting a little more notoriety or it's just the subject matter. But um, yeah, you never, you just, you can't really, yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to count on like you know what other people like. You know, it's like you have to just do what's you know, create your vision, right? And so, hope so, for the best. so it's more of a pure thing where you you create the vision and hope somebody likes to it. it. It's not sort of okay. I need to 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 shoot this thing because I know that this thing is the hot thing these days. So you really are just more based on on the creativity and letting. Oh, letting, completely. Okay, and and that's the great thing. Um, 
real quick, if I can, if I can just get a couple of white zombie questions in. Um, looking back here, twenty years after, happy with what the band did, and are you disappointed that that the band or, or Rob went solo and, and hasn't called you back? Because you know, there was a certain chemistry and a certain magic. Do you sort of miss being part of the team? Well, the the team completely, you know, broke up and split <laughs> right. four different ways in 96. So, it, you know, there's not a part of being, you know, part of the team anymore. I'm still great friends with Jay. I'm still great friends with uh, Johnny Tempesta and even past members, Tom Five, uh, Ivan the Prune. I'm in touch with all these guys. Um, Rob is Rob. He just decided he didn't want to talk to any of us <laughs> once, you know, he went solo. And I'm not, you know, I don't know his reasons why exactly, but I having uh you know, been in a relationship with him for seven years and had a band with him for seven years, uh, or long, no longer, 11, something like that. I don't lose track, but I, I do know that was kind of his pattern. So it wasn't a huge surprise and no, I'm not upset. I was definitely ready for that to be over with and get back to, you know, the reason I moved to New York city, which is to create design and photography. So I'm, I'm fine with it. And I love being friends with, you know, Jay and Johnny, I get postcards from all over the world from Jay like every other day, so <laughs> it's pretty fun. Yeah, uh, quickly talk to me about these these books that you make, these hand handmade books, um, because they're all, from what I gather and from I from the research here, is that they're all very unique. None, no two book is equal. These soirées d'évolution books. Um, talk to me about those. Well. I'll tell you what, I made this for that one show only, and they're, they're really um, kind of difficult to make. I don't think I'll be hand-making books again for any more shows, but it was, you know, it was a labor of love, and it, it was fun. You know, I, I I printed on all different kinds of papers, and there's, yeah, there's just a lot of detailed works, hand-stitching, um, all kinds of things involved, so... Um, yes, <laughs> that's probably the only handmade book you're ever going to okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll put it that way. All right. That, that, I, I do love them, but yeah. That, that was a, it was a little bit labor intensive, I, I can imagine. Um, what's the next exposition for you after this one? Well, I have a few ideas. I actually don't quite want to give them away, but one, one is based on my childhood where I want to use, um, young girls for models, but some of the um, scenarios are a little, a little creepy and dark. We, my sister and I were obsessed with, uh, we grew up out in the woods at one point in this log cabin when we were little and we were obsessed with magic. And my parents had these ancient witchcraft books. I mean, you know, they're both scholars. They have all kinds of books. (laughs) Of course, there's going to be a few ancient witchcraft books, but we, you know, we really thought we could maybe, you know, talk to the animals and do, you know, it was mostly fun things. We weren't like, it wasn't like Rosemary's baby or anything, <laughs> but uh, I just have all these crazy memories of, um, you know, kind of casting spells and, you know, the various kind of, you know, we thought like the trunks that were cut open were old witches' cauldrons and things. And I, I kind of wanted to do this like magical show with little girls in the woods kind of, you know, 
Well, I've said too much, and somebody else is going to do it. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, but uh, anyway. Cross that one I, off I the few, list. Uh, I but, know. I have, a, I have a few ideas. I'll put so, it that way. <laughs> I've, got, I've so, got about three more shows in my head that I want to create. So, but that's so talk one. to and me it's about mine. It's all yours, right? Well, well, well. Let's just say there, it's copywritten to you at this point, and, and nobody else touch it. But, Thank you. But uh, quickly, just talk to me about the images, because you know you've had the, these these the, the women in the bottles, you have the the giraffes in the whatever the library or whatever it was, and the elephants in the river. Um, does it interest you just to sort of do regular, right? And I and I underline that word regular landscape or just you know, just here's daily life or does it always have to be, and, and I don't know what the word is for it, you know, fantastical or, or just different. Or, uh, does it always have to be some kind of, you know, je ne sais quoi or, or can you just go straight forward and say, here's a picture of five faces, here's a mountain, like talk to me about the visual and where do you get these thoughts and, and can it just be something straightforward or does it always have to have sort of a, 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 a fantastical kind of imagery to it? For me, it does have to be something usually that you won't actually see in nature. It has to be something bizarre, something, you know, outlandish or something of the past that's not existing now. I, I, I'm not exactly sure why. I just, um, the, these surreal things intrigue me more than reality. <laughs> and the, I do have very vivid dreams. I remember that some dreams going back to, six, seven, eight years old, and, you know, they're much more interesting than what I see in real life. So I'd rather try to create these images. And that's that's just kind of the basis of my photography. I've, I, the first photo I ever did, I found a smashed TV set, and this was when I was in high school, and I found next to it in this kind of junkyard, I found this bouquet of plastic flowers, and I shoved them right in the center of the TV set where there was a perfect hole. It was like somebody had shot, maybe Elvis <laughs> had attacked the TV and there was a hole in the middle, but I shoved that bouquet in there and did a close up, you know, black and white shot of that. And that actually, you know, was one of the first awards I ever won for my photography. It was the first photo I ever shot. And it was a weird juxtaposed image I created. So I, it kind of stems back, you know, to, I don't know, just, it's just the way my brain works. I think <laughs> what, what excites me, what intrigues me or, yeah. You know, and not, I find, not the normal things in life. Yeah, and I find that creative process interesting because, you know, I like to consider myself creative as well. And, and you know, elephants in a river is not the way I, I, I would do it. But that's what I find intriguing is that we all have these different ways to sort of show who we are and what we are. And and just the psychology of it is, is fascinating. And, and I just love what you're doing because there, there's – Nobody else is doing what you're doing. It's it's very very unique to you, and it's great, absolutely fantastic. Well, and, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And uh, I, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was just going to say that I didn't um, realize it when I was putting this together because I was having so much fun. After a couple of these visions, I created you know twelve total images of animals in bizarre spots around town and iconic spots that I loved, my favorite spots, the cemeteries, the certain bars, you know, like different different places like this. And um, I was just having fun and I thought, oh, this show is going to be too silly. Like people are just going to think it's, you know, ridiculous. And when I started showing them to friends just recently, they were like, oh, they're so dark and 
kind of post-apocalyptic. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> I was like, there's no people. There's no people anywhere. There's no cars. Like, and I, don't, I just realized I always do that. Whenever I take photos, I make sure there's no, no sign of modernity or human beings <laughs> in general, unless there's a person I'm shooting in that spot. But um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. That's like a, a little extra a little lanyap, as we say in New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is because you see, I, I, I would be different. I, I like, you know, when I used to do concert photography and stuff, and I like sort of catching, you know, you with your bass in concert with the sweat dripper. I like that kind of uh, evocation in the in the art. And yours is completely different. And, and, and I think both are absolutely valid and fantastic. And it's just nice to see how the creative mind works within different people. And uh, just, it's just great. And Sean, always, always a pleasure uh, to talk to you. And, and definitely we should do this again soon. And uh, I'll just remind the folks, the Boyd Satellite Gallery, uh, October 2nd to October 31st. Uh, there you go. Uh, as we say in oh, Quebec, merci, you. merci, merci, as we say up here. Uh, et merci beaucoup. <laughs> yes. Uh, awesome. Thank you. thank you. I really thank appreciate it. <laughs> anytime. Cheers. Okay, take care, Mitch. Bye-bye. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. 